recording of it, so now we're good. Well, continuing through 1 Corinthians, uh, we're up to chapter 3, as we know. Last week, we saw that call in chapter 2 to be mature and spiritual people. Uh, and our maturity and our, our, spiritual, our spirituality is demonstrated by whether we receive that true hidden wisdom and power of God displayed in the message of the cross. Sadly though, the Corinthians had shown that they were not spiritual or mature. They were, Paul says, of the flesh. They were infants. And the evidence that they were immature, that they were infants and unspiritual, was their divisions, their, their uh, dividing. And it was caused, he says here, by jealousy and strife. Now, jealousy on its own can be good or bad. It was jealousy for his father's house that consumed Jesus when he drove out the money changers and traders from the temple, as we'll see a bit later. But it was also jealousy that drove Paul, when he was a non-believer, to persecute the church. It's a word in Greek, it is zealos, from which we get our English word zeal. It's a zeal that's good when it's passionate for a cause that's good and right and just, such as Jesus' passion, his zeal for the honour of his father's house and name. But it's bad when it's a passion that's more about selfish ambition and wanting to get our own way. And when zeal, your jealousy, is partnered with strife, it's always bad. These two words appear together a number of times in the Bible. Sometimes we see the pair jealousy and selfish ambition. In some places we see the pair strife and envy. It's good and even godly to be zealous about what's right and true and just, except when that zeal, that jealousy, causes division and friction and quarrelling where there should be love and unity. Why does jealous strife happen in a church? I think one big reason is when we exalt ideas over people. Or more specifically, when I exalt my ideas over you. When I'm more concerned with proving myself right and you wrong than with loving you, my neighbour, my brother or sister, with whom I may actually still disagree. Or in the Corinthians' case, it was claiming my favourite apostle is better than your favourite apostle. But this division over different men, different apostles, was the symptom of this deeper problem of selfish ambition. It's the core issue that we all battle with. It's the war within us between the flesh and the spirit, between our sinful nature that wants to hold on to Adam and our renewed nature 
that's being created in the image of Christ. It's not a unique problem that just happened in Corinth. Nor is it a problem that just happens from time to time and usually with other people. This is the heart of the battle that every Christian faces day to day. Am I going to live today for myself or for Christ? Am I going to be more concerned with satisfying my own desires and ambitions or am I going to die to myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus into a life of other person service? Am I going to ensure my own comfort and ease or am I going to step out of my comfort zone so that I might live a life to God's glory? So because that's the battle that happens within each one of us, it shouldn't surprise us then when conflicts happen in the church. Or maybe when people stop coming to church because there's people there they don't get along with or there's ideas they don't agree with. Now sometimes ideas that are being taught in a church are heretical and harmful and sometimes people leading a church can be unkind or can abuse their power and in those cases it it is necessary to leave a church and find a community where the gospel is taught with love and truth. But we should be praying that we, Bethel Christian Church, that we will be a church where all will be welcomed and valued, where all will know that they're going to be fed with the word of God and be brought to maturity, to grow in faith and hope and love. To be a church where no one need be fearful of controversies and divisions that can't be dealt with in love. The church is the best place to be trained in loving our neighbour. In the church we're put together with people that we haven't necessarily chosen ourselves, those of different generations, different personalities, cultures, experiences, theological preferences. The unity of the church in Christ where I say to you and you say to me, I will love you regardless of whether you are Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, young or old, regardless of your view of the place of spiritual gifts today or whether you are pre, post or amillennial, that unity that says, I will love you no matter what, that's what says to the world, this message these Christians have about the Father sending the Son into the world because of his great love for me, maybe it's true because look at them, they're loving one another. They should be fighting one another, but they're loving one another. If we can't learn to love one another in the family of God, how are we going to love those in the world? Least of all, our enemies. A number of people I know who have given up on going to church have done so because they say, well, it's actually just much easier to spend my time with the people that I've chosen, my friends, those who are like me, who share my interests, who share my preferences and who mostly agree with me. But Jesus hasn't called 
his people to do what's easy. No one becomes mature by sitting in ease and comfort. A soldier isn't prepared for battle by avoiding the rigours of training. A farmer doesn't reap a harvest without first putting in the work of sowing and tilling. A child isn't prepared for adulthood if they're just sheltered and cloistered from the realities and the rough and tumble of the world. The Father's goal for us is that we would grow to become mature in Christ. And the way he brings about that maturity, one of the ways is he throws us into the rough and tumble of life as Christ's people together in this world. But the church at Corinth was characterised not by this maturity, but by immaturity. The evidence, as I said, is this division over who's the best apostle to follow. The real problem wasn't the division per se, but it was actually in their propensity to attach themselves to their favourite apostle, to make them a celebrity. In recent months, the Christian world has been rocked by revelations about Ravi Zacharias. If you haven't heard of Ravi Zacharias, he was a well-known, a highly respected Christian apologist who spoke worldwide. He wrote over 30 books and had a ministry that spanned over 40 years. He died last May and the tributes flowed, but since his death, revelations have come about how he had been covering up his own sinful and abusive behaviour for some time. Not only has this discredited the ministry that he set up, but it's no doubt it's shaken the faith of many people who looked to him, many people who probably became Christians through his ministry. The tragedy is twofold. There are those who have been harmed and who will continue to be harmed by what he's done, but also the name of Christ has been brought into disrepute by the actions of someone who represented him. Well, Ravi was a celebrity. His ministry was named after him. I believe that's one of the first things to be concerned about if someone's ministry has their own name in the title. He was revered and respected by those who followed him so that for many of them probably to entertain an accusation against him was unthinkable. He was up there as the anointed one whom you can't touch. Now we'll never know the full story of how he ended up going on this path that he did and we're not in the place to judge where he stands now before the Lord. We must do two things. Firstly, Pray that we will be guarded against investing too much faith in any of our Christian leaders. We cannot treat them like saviours, but only, as Paul says in verse 5, servants. Secondly, we must watch our own life 
and doctrine carefully to make sure that the the face that we present to others is the same face that we present to God in secret. That as ambassadors of Christ we are above reproach. doesn't mean we never sin. It just means that when we do sin we're quick to repent. Verses 5 to 17 give us three images of the church. A field, a building and a temple. And with each one it highlights not just the significance of the church in God's plan but also that the apostles are just servants. That it's God himself who does the real work through the gospel of Christ crucified. Now Paul isn't just... uh, This is not the verse I thought. Yes, it is. That's the verse we're about to look at. Paul, he's not just pulling these images out of the air. Paul knows his Old Testament and here he's drawing on the words of Micah. Micah prophesied not long before the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom of Israel and they were then threatening to do the same to the southern king of Judah. And it was a time when the prophets of Israel were corrupt. And there's a number of parallels in Micah chapter 3 to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says here in verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And see the reference here in verse 8 to being filled with power with the spirit of the Lord. that enables Micah then to declare God's justice to sinful Israel. Unlike the other prophets who just told them what they wanted to hear in order to exploit them. Remember we heard Paul say that he came to Corinth in weakness and fear but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So Micah comes in the spirit and power and declares the judgment that's coming to Israel. Paul comes in the spirit and power to Corinth and he declares that the judgment, the justice of God has already come and it's been poured out on Jesus who paid for their sins, Christ crucified. Micah goes on. Hear this, you rulers the heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. 
Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The key verse here is this verse, verse 12, where the judgment that will come on people is described in three ways. The same images that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3. It will be a field that has been ploughed and is left bare, just as bare soil. It will be a building that's demolished and turned to ruins, a pile of rubble. And it will be a mountaintop whose temple has been discarded, removed and has now become overgrown with forest. These three images. God's judgment came upon Israel for rejecting their Messiah. They became the ploughed field, the demolished building, the desecrated temple. But in Christ, God is reconstructing his people. No longer as the nation state of Israel, but as the multinational, multicultural, global assembly of people that is the church. Jesus is building his church and the ploughed field is becoming fertile again and is being re-sown and watered. The stones of the ruins are being used to rebuild the building that will house the harvest when it comes in from the field. And the mountaintop is being rededicated and re-sanctified to become a temple, a place of worship again. We are God's field, we are God's building, we are God's temple. Let's look briefly at each one of those. Firstly, the church is God's field and in this field the apostles are simply the servants. Because the Israelites were agricultural people, the Bible's full of agricultural images to illustrate the kingdom of God. Israel is likened to vines and fig trees and olive trees and fields of grain. Jesus himself often used the images of farmers and labourers in fields and vineyards. Now whether or not Paul had a particular Old Testament passage or a parable in mind, we don't know for sure, but I think possibly it was this one in Mark 4. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. For when the grain is ripe, At once he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. The farmer is able to go to bed at night and sleep because he's done his work of sowing and of watering and he's trusting that the God of all creation will do the work of causing the seed to sprout and grow and produce. He can't make it grow. God is the one who does it. So the the yield of the harvest depends on God. God also takes care of whatever 
reward the sower and the waterer should get for their simple work. Note that the planter and the waterer are one. Sorry, it's not in that verse. It's in verse 8. Paul says, Though he who sows and he who waters are one, and they get whatever reward is required for their simple work. Neither one nor the other is more important than the other. They are co-workers together. God used whoever told you the gospel to sow the seed of the word into your heart. And he'll keep using various people through your life to teach and encourage and train you. Each of those people is simply doing what God has called them to do. Not to get praise from human beings, but simply to hear the words of the Father at the end, well done, good and faithful servants. So by all means, honour and love these people as you would anyone else, but never put them up on a pedestal. That won't help you grow to maturity and nor will it help them resist the temptation to have big egos and start preaching themselves instead of Christ. Secondly, we are God's building in which the apostles are simply builders' labourers. So for those who aren't agriculturally minded, the image of a building conveys the same idea. Paul was like the guys who come in with the big cement trucks and put down the reinforcements and pour the concrete and lay the foundation slab. It's happening all around this area. Uh, The foundation has to go first. This foundation has to be solid enough to support the house that's going to be built on it. Then others come in, the carpenters, the bricklayers, the electricians, the plumbers. Together, through their work, the house rises up and it becomes a house, becomes a home. Well, Jesus also used the imagery of a building at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now you may remember, or you may not, it's a while ago when we looked at this passage uh, early last year. We saw that this, this was said in the context of his other words where he was warning about false prophets, those who prophesied, who cast out demons and even did miracles in Jesus' name, but when it came to it, Jesus never knew them and he calls them workers of lawlessness. So in that context, this parable isn't about us building our own lives on Jesus and his words, but 
about whom we trust to be building the church of which we're members? Do they lay that solid foundation of Jesus Christ? And do they build on that foundation something that's substantial, something that's able to withstand the fire and the flood? Or do they build on a sandy foundation, something that's flimsy? And do they build a house of sticks and straw and hay that's easily burnt up or washed away in the flood? Water and fire often speak of judgments. And in this context, the flood of Jesus' parable and the fire of Paul's example represent that cleansing, purifying judgment of God. And this judgment of God exposes these people's ministry for what it is, either in this life or in the next. Sadly, Ravi Zacharias' work has been shown in a devastating way to have been wood, hay and straw, even though it looked like gold and silver and precious stones. Now, our gracious and patient Heavenly Father was still able to use all the many books and sermons and resources and lectures to bring about a faithful gospel work in the lives of many people who benefited from it, even through a flawed and sinful man. But now the judgment has come and it has made known the nature of that work. It's a solemn reminder again that we should never entrust ourselves to sinful people, no matter how impressive they may seem, but only entrust ourselves to Christ. Christ has passed through the fire and the flood of God's judgment at the cross. He bore our sin in himself and by doing that he ensured that all of the rotten wood and hay and straw of our unrighteousness was burnt up. And when that fire of judgment was complete, all that remained was Christ, the righteous one, raised up in glory, given all honour and authority and power as testimony to the fact that he is the only truly righteous one, the only true apostle in whom we can trust. So all that Christ has done in his work now remains and it's gold and silver and precious stones. Thirdly, the church is God's temple. And in the temple, the apostles don't even figure. If the apostles were workers in the field and they were builders of the building, we might expect Paul now to say that they are priests in God's temple. But the new temple doesn't need a cohort of priests. It's overseen and it's cared for by our great high priest, Jesus. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier, and drove out the money changers and the traders from the temple, 
he was confronted by the Jewish authorities and they said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' death and resurrection was the destruction and raising up of the temple of his body but it was a precursor. It was a sign that pointed to when the actual temple there in Jerusalem would literally be destroyed and then a new temple of the church which is called the body of Christ was raised up. This temple has been dedicated, it's been purified, it's been made holy. It's the perfect place for God to dwell by his spirit. Paul says here when he says you are the temple, God's temple, is it? The, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. The you there is plural. It's not talking about you as an individual, it's talking about you as a body, as the church. Each of us has been given the spirit but also together as the church we've been given the Spirit. So, what does this mean for us? Paul brings out two things in verses 18 to 23. Firstly, exchange the wisdom of the world for the wisdom of God. If anyone thinks they're wise, become a fool and then you'll be able to receive the true wisdom. As a church we must shun worldly ways of operating and seek instead to always operate with the gospel at the centre. The word of Christ must define, must shape what we do and how we do it. There's lots of methods we could employ, worldly methods that may result in numerical growth, that may result in good relevant community programs and structures But without the foundation of Christ, it'll just be wood, hay and straw. And history has shown time and again that churches who try to build something that looks impressive from the outside but doesn't have the depth and the width and the breadth of the gospel message will in the end come to nothing. They either fizzle out or... The celebrity pastor who starts them is either died or there's some scandal that's rocked them. Or worse, they'll just simply become just this machine that ticks over under its own steam but without the power of the Spirit. Secondly, Paul says, let no one boast in men meaning one particular man or one particular group of men or people. Apostles, prophets, pastors, elders, deacons, they'll all come and go. God will raise up people, he'll send people our way to be part of the body and each will have their particular part to play in the the plan that the Father's working out for us. 
But we should never think that any of those people will in some way be our saviour. I recently heard a new pastor say uh, that his church had given him the brief of getting young people and families back into their church. I feel really sorry for him because that's the kind of burden they shouldn't have placed upon him. It's the kind of promise that a pastor should never make to his church. I'm going to uh, bring in the kind of people that you want. As soon as we tell people, as soon as we start telling God what we want the church to be or the kind of people we want in the church, then we're presuming that we can somehow cause the growth when it's only him. Instead, Paul says, verse 21, for all things are yours. You see how Paul uh, outlines here a, a hierarchy and it's a bit different to what the Corinthians were expecting or maybe what we were expecting in their, in their heads. At the top of the hierarchy is God, obviously, the supreme authority over all things that exist. Under God is Christ. The words used here on its own, just Christ, rather than Jesus Christ, and that's because it's emphasising his role as the Christ, as the Son of Man who rules over creation on behalf of redeemed humanity who are in him. Now what the Corinthians were expecting next was the apostles under Christ ruling over the church. But it's not what he says. He says, under Christ is the church. You are under Christ. And what's under the church? He says, all things. All things are yours, including the apostles. And just little things like the world, life, death, the present, the future. This is, the, this is the hierarchy that God has set up for the church, uh, where God rules over all. Christ, with his authority, the Father's authority, reigns over creation and the church is his body and so we reign with him over creation and over all things and everything else that happens, whether it's leadership in the church or whatever goes on, uh, is all given to the church for our benefit, for our growth, for our maturing into the image of Christ. Romans 5.17 tells us that we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church or for the church. Colossians 2.10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In any hierarchy, we're to look up, not down. We're to see who has authority over us, not those over whom we have authority. We're to boast in our king, not in his servants. So let us not boast in men. Let us not boast in men who are under us as the church. Let us bow our knees to the one who reigns over us, to Christ, 
to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the times when we have put too much confidence in sinful men and women and not enough confidence in your Son, our Lord, our Saviour, our Redeemer, the head of the church, the husband of the bride. Father, save us from this temptation to raise people up to celebrity status, to look to them instead of to Christ. And help us, Father, to have hearts and minds and lives that are so full of the glory and the wonder and the majesty of Christ that we will not be able to do anything but speak of his excellencies, of his beauty, of his splendour to one another and to the world around us. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song. Uh, Just a reminder, when the song's finished, um, the Mandarin congregation will come and join us and we'll have a, a brief meeting. Let's stand and sing. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven?